0: Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Hi there, dear listeners. Thank you so much for being with us one more month, the first month of uh, 2021. And today we are going to feature an interview that Jenny did with our own, the very own, a co worker of mine, uh, also coordinator at the Antibiotic Centre, that she did actually on 15th of December. So this is a little bit from the end of last year. And we're presenting it to you here on the 1st of this 2021. We hope you enjoy and that you enjoy our conversation about it and also the new sections. See you there.
1: Welcome to this month's interview with uh, Dr. Linus Sandegren. Uh Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience a little bit? Thank you, Yanni.
2: Um, my name is Linus Sandigan. I'm a senior lecturer in medical bacteriology, and I'm also project coordinator at Uppsala Antibiotic Center at Uppsala University.
1: So in this case, it feels a little bit strange because I have heard you talk about your uh, backstory and how you got into AMR and how you got to where you are now, but I know it's a kind of fun story. So if you wouldn't mind telling us a little bit where you started, how you got into this work and maybe a little bit of what you're working with right now.
2: Yep, uh, so I studied molecular biology when I was uh, in university. And as you usually do, I think you you look at what's close to you or what, what kind of research is going on within the program or with the teachers that are doing the program. And I got very interested in catalytic RNA. And this is something that was really hot at that time. There was a Nobel Prize in 90 something, 93, I think, mm-hmm. uh, on catalytic RNA. And then I started working with this because uh, one of the main professors at the university was doing this. So I got into working on it as a PhD student. And this was in a lab where everyone else was working with proteins in different ways. So I felt kind of alone <laughs> in the work. but. The thing I was studying was was these catalytic RNA molecules in bacteriophages, so we were working with bacteria. And within these bacteriophages that are then viruses that infect bacteria, these RNA molecules were kind of a parasite within the parasite, so to say. So what these were doing is they were basically just sitting in the genome, and when the gene that they were sitting in was expressed, they cut themselves out. Mm -hmm. these uh, catalytic RNAs. And that was all they were doing. So they were basically just sitting there and removing themselves. And the interesting part in this, it sounds really strange, but the the interesting thing is that they were sitting in genes that by having these introns, they they were very essential genes for the bacteria Mm -hmm. that had these catalytic introns that they're called. And within the intron, there was also another gene. Mm-hmm. So now we're in a bacterium that is getting infected by a virus that is in itself carrying a lot of uh, kind of selfish genetic elements. And in one of these selfish genetic elements, the catalytic intron, there is another gene sitting. And this gene cuts the DNA exactly where this intron is inserted. And now I've, we've lost all the listeners. <laughs> but just to wrap it up, this gene sitting inside the intron will cut the site where the intron is sitting if the intron is not in the genome. By doing that, it cleaves the DNA, which is very toxic to any organism. So it has to be repaired. And in a phage infection in a bacterial cell or a virus infection in our cells, there are lots of copies of the viral genome. So there is usually always another copy of the viral genome in there that can be used to repair this cut. So if this gene and the intron is lost, by deletion then the enzyme will cut this and bring it back in again and these are called homing endonucleases because if they are lost they home back into the same site, so they are kind of a selfish genetic element, and this mm-hmm. is where I got interested in the selfish genetic elements that we're studying now or in antibiotic resistance. But at the time, we were not working at all with antibiotic resistance. No, it's Instead, a very basic science kind of thing, it sounds yes, like. Yes, this this was extremely basic. I think there are no applications. <laughs> that are actually, we're, people are using these uh, homing in the nucleases to cut... DNA they have very long mm-hmm. sites of sequence homology that they need or sequence identity that they need for cutting, so they cut basically once a genome, okay. which is good if you want to target something. One of the persons who actually worked with these catalytic RNAs at the same time uh, was Jennifer Dudna, who got yeah. uh, the Nobel Prize this year for finding the crispr uh, system mm-hmm. and and this is another system that is used to cut DNA very precisely, of course so it's it's interesting in a sense that these things kind of come from very basic science. And now everyone very, is talking about yeah, CRISPR. Yeah, it's a very right? applied
1: thing. I mean, it's yeah. So there's you so many applications for
2: it. Yeah. And she was the first one to actually solve the crystal structure of one of these catalytic introns that I was working with. So even though no one at all have ever understood what I'm talking about when I talked about <laughs> my PhD job, now I, by telling a story like this, you can actually see the basic research getting into practical
1: uh, applications after a while. That's a very good example of the the benefit of doing basic research that nobody would have believed from the beginning.
2: But then when I was done with my PhD, I was looking for postdocs. And at that time, Sweden actually had a research council in Sweden, had a possibility to apply for doing a postdoc in Sweden uh, Mm -hmm. in a way to kind of move people around more within Sweden as well. Most of the time we go abroad and then many people, at least in Sweden, they return to their old home university. And Ended up in Uppsala mm-hmm. with Don Anderson, because I was really interested in the antibiotic resistance field, and especially when it comes to the mobile genetic elements.
1: So is that where your interest in AMR came from, the mobile genetic elements? Or did you have an interest kind of outside of that as well?
2: Let's say it was a combination. I had a real interest in the evolution behind homing in the and the mobile mm-hmm. genetic elements and the impact they have on bacteria. And in the same way, I mean, of course, I picked up on that pretty early as well, that mobile genetic elements are really important for the spread of antibiotic resistance genes. Yeah. So it was a combined interest already from the start. And when I was thinking about what I wanted to do after my PhD, this was one of the fields that I really wanted to continue in. And it was a possibility to go abroad as well, of course. But mm-hmm. at the same time, we, we were getting our first child, um, actually a week before my defense, we found out. <laughs> so <laughs> it, it was a time that kind of a hard time to, harder uh, to move. Yeah, pick up
1: and move to a different continent, maybe.
2: Yeah. And in this way, I could at least start off a postdoc period. I was actually perhaps planning on doing a second one abroad as well, but mm-hmm. that didn't happen. <laughs> Instead, there was a position as assistant professor that opened very nicely when I <laughs> When I needed something like that, so and it was very timely. Yes, it Mm -hmm. it was the medical faculty in Uppsala that had a a drive for assistant professors, and uh, I got one of those. And then I, since then, I've been kind of stuck in Uppsala. (laughs) Uh, No, not stuck. I, I really, I really like it there, so it's it's nice to to stay around. And at the moment, then I have my own group. So now I'm senior lecturer in medical bacteriology. And as I said, also, I'm a project coordinator at the Uppsala Antibiotic Center.
1: But you lead a group with your own research as well. Uh, do you have any particular projects in AMR that might be interesting for listeners? The, the overarching
2: goal is still on the mobile genetic elements and mm. mainly the bacterial plasmids. So small chromosomes, so to say, if you're not uh, in, in the field, yeah. <laughs> it's it, bacteria have their own chromosome, the big chromosome, where they store all the genes that are needed for everyday maintenance of a cell function. But they can also have smaller DNA pieces. And these are called plasmids. And many of those can actually move between different cells. So they are a kind of shuttle vector <laughs> or transport of genes between different bacteria and in being that they can also of course bring in new genes to different bacteria Mm -hmm. so what we're studying is mostly genes related to resistance that are plasmid born and how these plasmids then that are in themselves selfish genetic elements how they affect the bacteria both negatively by invading the cell or sitting in there and maybe there are some functions that are not optimal to carry But by bringing in resistance genes, Mm -hmm. they actually give a benefit for the bacteria as well in the presence of antibiotics. Mm -hmm. So it's this combination of being a parasite and still benefiting your host that we're looking into.
1: Yeah, it's a matter of, I mean, it benefits the plasmid as well to have these antibiotic resistance genes because they're maintained in those kinds of environments. But uh, it it is, as you say, also a balance between... Yeah,
2: it's it's a balance between uh, something that the bacteria might not be interested in yeah. hosting a, a lot of uh, other factors in there if it's not of any benefit to them. Yeah, but the, I mean, think
1: these can be pretty big things too that surprisingly don't always seem to carry much of a disadvantage for the cell. So that's they're pretty interesting to study, but the, from an AMR perspective, yeah, that's one of the main ways that antibiotic resistance genes can spread between different bacteria, right?
2: Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there are differences between different bacteria or different species, but when it comes to the clinical problem we have with resistance today, most of those resistance factors, the, the things that make bacteria resistant are transferred from what outside the cell and many of them on plasmids. Yeah. So when it comes to a gene that is degrading the antibiotic or modifying it or pumping it out or replacing a function that the antibiotic is blocking, mm. then these things are very often spread. So. So to say, horizontally between bacteria, that's it's not vertically inherited from mother to daughter cells, but instead it moves from one cell to another. And many times these plasmids are involved in this. Mm. So they are a central player when it comes to the spread of resistance. And this is also what we're studying. So both how they interact with the cell, but also how they spread and especially how they are selected by antibiotics, both high concentrations of antibiotics and low concentrations of antibiotics. And how these genes that the plasmids contain also affect the level of resistance, so to say, mm. if there's one copy of the gene, uh, usually they can become resistant to a certain level or tolerate a certain concentration of antibiotic. But if there are multiple copies, then the bacterial cell can uh, tolerate higher concentrations. Yeah. And this is much more dynamic on a plasmid than on the chromosome.
1: Yeah, the plasmids kind of allow for this flux that bounces out. I mean, if this cell needs to be more resistant to survive in a certain environment, it kind of over time in a population level allows for survival yeah. while it can also be lost again when it's, I mean, this additional producing antibiotic resistance proteins and stuff like that, it always costs energy for the cell to produce these things. So it's this kind of benefit that we see of things being gained when necessary and lost when necessary, but on a population level, of course. Hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's a very interesting. I know you've also, um, worked a lot with a specific plasmid Mm. that uh, caused an outbreak at the University Hospital. So you've worked a lot with like a very concrete clinical example as well, coming from this, you know, a little bit of basic science, but applied to antibiotic resistance, trying to understand how plasmids work. You also have this example of this plasmid that was involved in a very real clinical outbreak. Mm. So it's, it's another interesting balance, I think, in your work between this basic stuff and the supply stuff and seeing how it all works together very well.
2: That's a really good example. So mm. the outbreak was in 2005 in the Uppsala University Hospital. And uh, totally, there was over 300 patients that were affected by the same bacterium. So it was a Klebsiella pneumonia and it was multi-resistant which made it very hard to treat Um, now it's not a very pathogenic bacteria it's not killing the patients but there were a lot of urinary tract infections uh, pneumonias and other blood infections and so on that are associated with these bacteria and especially it was very good at spreading in the hospital so it was mainly spread in the hospital, not in society, but no. uh, and that's a problem in itself. Yeah. But absolutely. the problem then was also that it was so multi-resistant. It was resistant to a lot of different antibiotics, and the reason for that was mainly that it carried a plasmid that we have worked with since then this plasmid is an example of a plasmid that did not have any resistance genes from the start Mm -hmm. we have found other related plasmids that don't have these resistance genes instead all those resistance genes they jumped from one plasmid to another probably in another cell than this klebsiella we don't know where it happened but they are very similar all the whole region where these genes are sitting is very similar to another famous outbreak lineage of bacteria that is an e coli that instead of spreading in in just Uppsala, it it has actually spread all over the world called st131 it's a specific lineage Mm. and that is also known to be multi-resistant and sometime somewhere these two plasmids have met in a cell and then the resistance genes jumped onto the klebsiella plasmid, and possibly ended up in this specific klebsiella that was very prone to spread so it's an example of how this evolution works and how fast it can be, because going from no resistance to multi-resistance is just one evolutionary step in that case.
1: Yeah. And specifically in that background where we see an easy spread, and like you said, luckily not very pathogenic. It didn't cause any mortality or anything like that, but it did cause disease and it... Was difficult to treat. And these are all like step-by-step things, you know, it's, it has this background, this, these traits, but then when you add the plasmid with the antibiotic resistance, then you're also adding a treatment difficulty. So it's, it's an interesting, like you see the step-by-step process of how this how this can keep getting worse if we're going to be really pessimistic about it, uh, that this will be a a continuous problem.
2: And we're using this plasmid now to look at the interplay between the plasmid and the bacterial cell, for example. And in this case, it does have a little bit of a cost, but it's, I mean, if you compare a plasmid-containing version of this Mm -hmm. cell and one without the plasmid, then it's a couple of percent lower growth rate for the one with the plasmid. In the long run, that would be detrimental for the plasmid yeah. and the bacterium. But uh, anytime you add antibiotics there, the one without the plasmid is gone. So in the hospital situation, this is clearly a, a case where, where these ones thrive. They the uh, yeah. a real benefit for the bacterium.
1: And as you kind of alluded to before, it doesn't have to be necessarily high concentrations. We've seen that you know low concentrations of antibiotics mm-hmm. can affect selection as well. Yeah. So this plasmid is still... Uh, advantageous or there's still like a benefit of carrying it even if it's a really low concentration or really low it all depends but it doesn't have to be like hospital level treatment
2: no exactly the concentrations we use to treat a patient that's extremely high yeah and, and kill off a lot of bacteria but when we treat the patient or after treatment the antibiotics usually they're cleared through the kidneys Mm -hmm. and then they go out through the urine and most of it usually end up in the sewage water. And we have a study now where we're looking at what concentrations of antibiotics do we have in the sewage water in Sweden or in Uppsala in this case. Mm -hmm. And there are lots of numbers from all around the world. And since we're a country that is using very little antibiotic compared internationally, we also have relatively low concentrations in the sewage water. But the concentrations we do have are enough to actually select for this plasmid in the sewage. So the bacteria will also end up there because Klebsiella is a gut intestinal bacterium. Mm -hmm. So it ends up the same way in the sewage. Mm -hmm. And maybe we also have a selection pressure in the environment that can actually maintain these plasmids or the bacteria that carry the plasmids in the population.
1: So you've been working with these kinds of projects, specifically looking at plasmids, especially with the antibiotic resistance connection for a while now. So I'm wondering, for my perspective, it feels like the field has developed over more recent time, that there's a kind of a broader understanding that it's a complicated problem, that there's the biological aspect that we study, but there's a lot of other parts to it as well, uh, to the antibiotic resistance problem as a whole. So I'm wondering if you have any feelings, like any personal opinions on what's missing from the field still today, or any kind of wish list to what we can do to improve?
2: Uh, It can become a pretty long list now as you say it's absolutely true we have uh, have changed our understanding quite a lot or the basic understanding has always been there we know from the start uh, or the people who started alexander yeah. Fleming, for example that started to find penicillin already back in those days they knew that bacteria could become resistant to them mm-hmm. but it wasn't imagined to become such a big problem because the understanding of evolution at that time said that, okay, these resistance mutations that people saw happening, they, they will never be really a problem because we just switched to another antibiotic and to another antibiotic. And then no one really thought that at the beginning that multi-resistance would occur. Yeah. It's an interesting story historically as well, that when they actually found the first resistance plasmids, no one believed them because it wasn't possible for a bacterium to become resistant to three different antibiotics at the same time. But it was discovered in Japan and then later in Europe and the U.S. as well. And it took a while before they could convince the general opinion that this was true. And after that, we have still continued to just keep on doing the same thing. We try to fix a new antibiotic when the bacteria become too resistant. But since we haven't kept up with that, and, and especially... I mean, we've had some interviews before in the podcast about mm-hmm. uh, the industry and the economy behind this. I mean, that's one of the key factors that have kind of put us in this situation. Yeah. That bacteria will not stop evolving, but we have not kept up the speed of producing new classes of antibiotics. Yeah. But mainly,
1: and not only economically. I mean, it's gotten harder. We got the, there's a phrase that I've heard a lot from people when they get talks this that the low hanging fruit. We've got the low low hanging fruit. And now there should be things left to find, of course, but it's, uh, it's harder. Mm. It's, yeah, definitely. Uh, I mm-hmm. mean,
2: after Fleming found penicillin in a microorganism, everyone was out chasing <laughs> new yeah. microorganisms that produced antibiotics. And through the 40s, 50s, 60s, that's when the low hanging fruit were picked. So mm. most of the classes of antibiotics that we use today, clinically found them. And after that, of course, it becomes more difficult to find new ones. If you go out and dig in the soil, you will find streptomycin again and again and again. Yeah. And at the same time, you're competing with those good antibiotics that are around. This should, of course, change now. This is not my field, <laughs> but <laughs> it, it should change now when we have less and less effective antibiotics. But in a sense, these are pretty rare cases, especially if talking about Sweden. We do find multi-resistant bacteria with basically no treatment options, but it's very, very rare, Yeah, meaning there will be very, very few treatments. The problems are bigger in other parts of the world, but probably not big enough to motivate industry to actually go in there. In itself, all the antibiotic treatments are kind of very small revenue yeah for a drug company so even if you talk about the things we use every day in treatments it's very cheap with antibiotics usually mm-hmm. so there is a an economic problem that needs to be fixed so that's one of the things that is really needed on the wish list of course
1: a new economic model to take care of this to to, to manage the fact that we're talking about a low number of treatments yeah low revenue
2: yeah so we, we definitely need new antibiotics. Yeah. It will be very hard. And that's what we have realized from the evolutionary perspective. It would be very hard to get a reversal of the resistance.
1: Yeah. And we tend to see that it's not really lost. I mean, there is an idea that if you just stop treating with something that mm-hmm. the resistance will be lost. But I know it's, and now I'm going off memory here, uh, the Swedish trauma Network, I believe, has looked at some of this where they changed the recommendation of a specific treatment and they didn't actually see a change in the resistance level or was it a very low change? I think oh. you know what I'm talking about. Uh,
2: it was UTIs yeah. that they looked at. So they switched treatment recommendation and the resistance that they were looking at, of course, it was going up Mm -hmm. slightly before the intervention, but it, and it stopped going up, but it didn't really go down. No. And that was the discouraging finding. I mean, they ended up at a plateau, basically. So the resistance was maintained in the bacterial population. But in order to reverse this, you would actually need to have a sharp drop, unless we would like to stop using antibiotics for a generation or something like that. But it's going to be hard to reverse resistance, at least completely or for the best drugs that we have. There are examples of possibilities to do this, but it's Mm -hmm. not something that has been uh, really effective, so to say. So uh, understanding the evolution is important to see where it's going. Getting new antibiotics is important to have new treatments in the future. But then we also have to get people to actually use these drugs more responsibly. So The human side is a big part of this and something that I'm not working with, but that has really opened my eyes when I've been working with the UAC in a more multidisciplinary setting Mm. that the the kind of behavioral change things that are needed on so many levels personal level for patients or people who who have an infection but in many parts of the world you just go and combine yeah. antibiotics for like that and then there is an overtreatment because of not to be evil in any way but in order to you think it helps you yeah. and if it's driven by people's believed needs and someone who gains money from selling it, it it's never going to stop either So the list is very long and there are so many different aspects that need to be taken care of. So this is not something that we can solve with one single simple solution. It's a very complex problem and it needs to be addressed in many different aspects. And and therefore, it's it's really important that we get other scientists apart from just the molecular (laughs) biology or medicine scientists into this.
1: So this is a really nice tie-in to, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about the UAC. You were actually part of our first episode where we did a little panel discussion discussing the UAC's beginnings. And this was very early on, but it's been about four years now, if I remember right. And I want to ask a little bit how you think it's gone so far for the UAC. Yeah it's been 4 years the
2: center was announced actually in 2015 but it took about a year before we actually got started but mm-hmm. once we started we were um, a set of four people so Don Anderson was the director of the center he was appointed early on and me Anna Sorset who is uh, now at React and um, Cecilia Nilsson who was then at uh, UU Innovation mm-hmm. we were enrolled as project coordinators to start up this center and that involved a lot of kind of trying to connect people to get people interested in this topic and try to collaborate and the best way of doing that we thought was to start a research school yeah so what we did was we announced phd positions that were to be applied from the supervisors so group leaders or researchers that had a, an interest in this topic, they could apply for financing for a PhD student or part of the salary. Mm-hmm. And then they employed the PhD students because we cannot do that as a center, so to say, technically speaking. And then these PhD students now, most of them have done their half-time and they are, some of them are actually approaching their PhD defense soon. So it's, it's taken a while <laughs> and this always does. Yeah. Yeah. But I think we have really form the center now that the the center of the center or the core of the center (laughs) are the PhD students and by having them there they are kind of interacting much more than everyone else of course Mm -hmm. with each other and with with people who we invite and so on but we also get their supervisors in
1: yeah you kind of get the both layers in.
2: exactly so it's kind of like layers the alternative of, of setting this up would be to kind of so we got money to support the center and support the research. And we could have given that to different researchers. But the hard part then is to kind of link them together to form a center.
1: Yeah. And to maintain this. I mean, it's one thing to kind of start, but this maintained connection, I feel like that's easier.
2: I think so, too. I think it's much easier with, with, with new people <laughs> that, that don't have a pre- I don't know, an agenda on their own that they want to pursue? Yeah, or
1: just they don't know yet. I mean, there's maybe this new level of curiosity and learning that everybody has, but it's probably heightened in PhD students. They're thinking about their future career. They're thinking about, you know, where can I go with this? Maybe more than an established researcher does.
2: Yeah, an established researcher might not only have this project in yeah. their mind as well. And And for a PhD student, I think it's easier to it is an education. And mm-hmm. you by having them in this kind of multidisciplinary environment, so we have PhD students from all the scientific disciplines So the university, so humanities and social science, natural science and technology, and medicine and pharmacy. By having PhD students in all those fields, they get to know what the others are doing in a way that I don't think researchers normally do in here we're actually talking completely different ways of doing research some are in the lab doing mm-hmm. wet labs, some are out in the world doing interviews all kinds of aspects of how research is done And just showing that research can be done in so many ways, I think is rewarding for anyone in research included. I've learned a lot by being part of this center, lots of things that I had no clue about. And in a problem that is so broad as antibiotic resistance, I think it's good that people have at least a basic knowledge about other aspects of the problem. And there's, I mean, the added
1: benefit of not just, I mean, the center gets what the center gets, but you're also... Putting a gener- this sounds a little cheesy, but putting a generation of young researchers out there that have this perspective from the beginning that there's a broader side of everything, that there's different ways of doing research, and it's sometimes I've heard a little bit that you know there's some opinions about qualitative versus quantitative research and that sort of thing that you know hard numbers and statistics maybe matter more than interviews or that mm-hmm. sort of thing in the in studies and stuff like that. And I think, personally, it seems like one of the big benefits here just from being a PhD student, that's heard PhD students in the center discussing. Mm. I feel like you just don't have that there. There isn't this like feeling of the way I do research is the way you should do research, mm. and it's it's much more open. Yeah, I hope so,
2: uh, and that that's part of it, right? To to show that. I mean, we have different ways of doing research methodology wise it differs widely but to learn that people are doing research in other ways it's it's also very good to get the mindset straight (laughs) perhaps that you don't think that what you are doing is the only way of doing it Mm -hmm. and i I think also that by having a research school we we train the phd students in the broad topic of antibiotic resistance but we also get their supervisors in and we also get the wider community at the university in there as well, because we have open seminars and symposia and so on. And trying to link anyone who is not really working on antibiotic resistance into this is also important because many people or many researchers have methodology or they have kind of research questions that could be applied within this field as well. Mm -hmm. And to open people's eyes and find those new collaborations that's i think is what's what's the key in in getting something to be more successful than just education of single people
1: yeah so have you seen any other difficulties or challenges to the center i mean reaching out at a broader sense is of course difficult and of course even more now with corona and everything i'm sure it's very hard but are there any general challenges that you've seen with the center
2: The core of the center is that it should be multidisciplinary, and Mm -hmm. that's all in itself very hard. One thing you realize very quickly is we don't speak the same language, even if it's Swedish or English, (laughs) it's the scientific language different. Just a very easy example. I've said it a couple of times, group leaders now in humanities and social science, they rarely work in groups. So when we started saying that we announced money for group leaders to uh, apply, they said, what group leaders? (laughs) Uh, It's different, different subjects, of course, in humanities and social science and so on, but just the concept. And then, of course, we start using abbreviations all the time. And uh, these things, they're very simple examples of how there can be communication problems and problems to understand each other.
1: And now that you mention it, I mean, the the structure of a PhD is different depending on Yep. I mean, the structure of a PhD just here in Sweden is very different for somebody with a humanities background than somebody from the medical faculty. I mean, I haven't thought about that, how hard it's just from like a system setup structure thing. It, it's got to be difficult. Yeah,
2: we have different, completely different ways of, of uh, announcing PhD positions and yeah. the financing of PhD positions. Here we come with external grants, even if it's from uh, within the university. Mm-hmm. Some people are not used to applying for external money. No. And at the same time, the kind of supervision structure that we have in different parts of of the university in with my own PhD students, I have meetings every day or ad hoc meetings you run into each other. But for a supervisor in many of the humanities and social sciences, it's not that you meet the student all the time. There's sometimes sitting in completely different parts, and it's much more individual research and identification of the research questions that is the primary thing there. While we work much more in teams, and we usually have a predefined project that yeah. a student starts with, because we have applied for external money for this particular project. So there is usually a most of our, our PhD students, they start off with a project that they have not define themselves. Yeah, This is kind of the key thing for uh, humanities and social science many times, that it's the project comes from the student themselves. This is a completely different <laughs> maturation process. Then That's something we've seen within the center as well. When we have people from the different disciplines, it's going to be interesting to see what the end product, if you can call them that, <laughs> yeah, will really be, how, how they have influenced the each other uh, during this time. The interesting thing is also now we're the very positive thing is we, we got a very good evaluation from the university after these four years. And now That's we have secured funding for another batch of PhD students. So we we're just uh, now opened a, a new call for uh, 13 new positions.
1: So the school will continue with the new, the new Yeah, batch. So
2: we're, we're up for four more years at least. And the good thing is we will have some overlap between the PhD groups, which I think is important because then the first group can kind of interact with the second group.
1: And you're not starting over from beginning in the same way. If you have some overlap, then you kind of maybe can keep developing in that sense. It's not starting from zero with um, a new batch of students.
2: I think it's good that, for example, when the current batch of PhD students, when they present their projects, and then eventually when they have their PhD defenses, the second batch can Kind of see this and uh, join in a bit. So yeah, they, they get that. Also get the motivation of seeing the
1: light at the end of the tunnel. <laughs> Hopefully, uh,
2: and not scaring them off. Yes. <laughs> and by doing this, we'll see. Uh, of course, we've opened up for it, it's again researchers at the university that can do this. Mm-hmm. This time, it's also one or two positions. We not really decided from the Swedish Agricultural University that is also okay. located in Uppsala, so SLU. They are financing at least one position. So it will be more interaction on the broader sense with animal side coming in.
1: But that's exciting.
2: Yeah, it's good because antibiotics are used a lot there too. And bacteria, they infect animals and-
1: And it's that kind of thing of just because the SLU, the Swedish uh, Agriculture University is geographically located so close to Uppsala University, we don't have, from what I understand, Uppsala University doesn't have a lot of that.
2: No, exactly. It's kind of separated that way, I think. There are a lot of interaction between.
1: Yeah, but it's nice that that can be included, that interaction can be included in the center as well. That's great. Uh, SLU has been involved
2: in the center already from the start. So we've had representatives in the steering group, for example. But it's really nice that they have chosen to support PhD students in the research school. Mm -hmm. There has been other PhD students and uh, researchers coming from SLU that have taken part in all the activities because they're open for everyone. It's not just the people we support financially. But the center is open to uh, anyone who is interested, of course. Mm -hmm. And I shouldn't forget, in addition to those um, PhD students, we also have three uh, assistant senior lecturer, I think Mm -hmm. it's called in English. Biträdande universitetslektor in Swedish. It's a tenure track system that we haven't had before in Sweden. So in four years, they can merit themselves. And then they're up for an evaluation if they will become senior lecturers in, in the end. And we have three. Of those that are supported by the center so we we have one in each scientific domain which is really good because then we could also apart from getting phd students in that kind of support the existing groups at the university we could also start some new groups Uh, and i think that's an important part to kind of broaden the research topics
1: we did have the pleasure of interviewing all three of them in the last three months so it's if anybody wants to hear more from them that's all there I think we're about to wrap up now. We've had a a nice long conversation here. I just wanted to ask if there's anything else you want to mention, uh, maybe about the UAC or about your research in general.
2: No, I think it's nice that we have, uh, as you said, so many layers now. I was thinking back and we, I mean, we go from the basic education with students, but I hope that we can also expand into uh, other kind of topics and not at least the uh, humanities and social science and explain that this is a problem where we desperately need their help. Yeah. Because if we're going to make a lasting change, it's not enough that we find new antibiotics. As we said, we need to change behavior. And we're not good at that <laughs> from the medical yeah. side. We need people that have this as their research instead change
1: behavior and change societal framework yeah, fi- and that's financial models
2: <laughs> is not our way thing either we have a lot no. of these things and an important part that we haven't mentioned and this is part of what we're doing now we're doing a lot of outreach and uh, yeah. Eva Germandia just sent uh, a text this morning saying that we've reached a thousand followers on Twitter. Yay. Not that I know what that means because I'm not <laughs> tweeting anything, but we, there is some kind of interest out there. And, yeah. and uh, listeners, and that to is this part of UAC's
1: well. purpose as well is to also help with outreach. I know Eva's worked with, um, as the project coordinator at the UAC, that she's worked a lot with outreach and working on how to, not just within academia, to kind of try to reach outside of that as well. Uh, and yeah this podcast is part of her long-going efforts
2: it's important that we get that as well because as you started off by saying the whole in the whole interview mm-hmm. this the, the, the interest or the the understanding has increased a lot uh, Yeah. the last i would say 5 years or 10 years the awareness is much better now on a political level than mm-hmm. it's been before the striking thing was actually at the Health Summit in 2015. That mm-hmm. was we, we had the topic then on antimicrobial resistance for the first time. That was when the center was also announced from the university. That uh, summit was timed so that uh, we would come kind of a month after the uh, World Health Organizations report on on antimicrobial resistance of the problem this was very good because this is the first time when the world leaders starting to understand this or or at least get it on the agenda the problem was that everyone else also started calling for meetings and um, Barack Obama who was the president in the US at the time Mm -hmm. he called for a meeting the same day Uh So overnight, we lost all our uh, American speakers, actually, to the summit. We had a few that actually could do it due to time differences, (laughs) get up in the middle of the night and give an online talk. So we started already back then, five years ago, with with the online stuff. But But A downside
1: um, of the upside of everybody suddenly caring.
2: (laughs) it, It was a striking time because then... This topic started to be recognized as a big problem worldwide. So, that's the, uh, an encouraging thing that that this is at the top level now. It's together with climate change and mm. uh, in these days, then COVID. It's something yeah. that affects all the countries in the world, all the people in the world, and we need to do something together to fix it. And then we need the politicians to
1: understand yeah. it as well. The next step is also not to lose momentum. With COVID coming up now and everything like that, we have to make sure that it's not forgotten about is maybe the wrong phrase because it's going to come back and bite us in the butt, but (laughs) that it's not a case of we've already solved it. We've already talked about that once. It's a constant, like climate change, it's constantly Mm -hmm. going to be there. It's not a one time and done thing.
2: Exactly. And that's very important that uh, politicians or the decision makers understand that there is no quick fix. No. They cannot throw money at this problem and then expect it to be just solved. This is not something we need once. This is something we continuously need, basically in the same rate as we had during the 40s, 50s, and 60s, because then we were ahead of the bacterial evolution. Mm -hmm. Now bacteria have caught up with us. If we're going to get ahead start again, then we need... We have a, a, a very stable production of new antibiotics, mm-hmm. and we're not really there. Even if they announce one prize for a company that gets one, that's not the that's that's only the start. Yeah, it's important to keep this momentum. Yeah, and uh, that's also sure. something that COVID has taught us that. At the start of something, we're really keen on things. Everyone was following the news. Everyone was behaving in the way it should, mm-hmm. or they should. And then, then the peak came, and and the, during the summer here in Europe, at least, declined a lot. Yeah. And it's much harder now in the autumn. People Partially, are weary and tired of this. And, yeah. And you it, can't
1: really let this become a new normal. You can't normalize that people die of COVID right now. You can't normalize that people die of antibiotic resistance infections. It's
2: but it's really hard to keep getting the attention. I say.
1: It's been a nice conversation. I mean, it is interesting because we work in the same place and uh, talk a lot, but it's nice to have this dedicated time to talk about this. And I really appreciate you sitting down with us to talk about uh, your opinions on the matter and how the UAC has been evolving and developing over time. And it's nice to hear that it's going to keep going for at least four more years. Thanks for having me. It was really nice to
2: to talk to you, Yuni.
1: <laughs> Thank you. Welcome back. So, Ava, what did you think of this interview?
0: Uh, It was very nice to hear you and Linus talk. As you mentioned at the beginning of the interview, we did something similar uh, back in the days for the first episode, which is actually our Mm -hmm. most listened episode of the podcast with almost Uh a thousand plays at this moment. I think I checked last week. So (laughs) it's uh, very nice to, you know, just sit and listen uh, and learning a bit more about why Linus became the researcher that he is today. You know, it was very nice. I already knew about his story, especially the story that he was the only one working on his topic in his department, which was a little bit depressing. He was always telling me I had a lot of hard deals to solve and I was a little bit alone because no one was working on the same thing. Um so it was very nice to hear, you know, a comprehensive summary of how he got to work on AMR and how Mm -hmm. his previous research actually is sideways related to AMR in a sense. So yeah, Yeah. it was it was cool. And I mean
1: it's it's always fun to interview somebody you know, especially like (laughs) like you said, I mean you I've talked to Linus before about his past and he's told us his story before at like lab retreats and stuff like that. So it's, it wasn't new, but it's always kind of fun to hear. And some parts were new
0: seen it also perhaps in a little bit of a different context right because yeah i knew that he worked on this homing endonucleases but i didn't know for example that nada got the Nobel for the CRISPR this year actually working a very similar thing as well and she was one of the persons resolving the structures of, of those enzymes so that's kind of yeah. nice to see how you know everything is connected in a way in the biology and particularly in these topics and yeah. also how something so basic can be applied in a way. So I think, as he said, a lot of more people would understand what he did based off that a lot of people know now what CRISPR does.
1: Yeah, exactly. It kind of brings a new like importance to his basic work. Mm-hmm. But I also thought I didn't know a lot about the nice updates from the UIC. So it was nice to hear that things are going well and that you guys have a new round of PhD students coming in mm-hmm. and that there's been different Parts opening. And when I was talking with Eunice, you know, so I was kind of reminded of the fact that I've, since I do have conversations with a lot of the UAC PhD students at seminar and stuff like that, less now in COVID, unfortunately, but before, like I mentioned in the interview, it's nice to hear le- like there's not a judgment of other people's research methods and that sort of thing. I feel like it is students that are more open to different ideas and different ways of working and things like that. I feel like we're not seeing the same kind of inherent biases that you maybe see in other people, which I think is a really nice benefit of the UIC system is that you're automatically introduced to different ways of thinking and different ways of working and getting respect for these different ways.
0: Yeah, I. it was very nice because we did get like officially evaluated, you know, by the university. They put a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they wanted to get a proper unbiased and external opinion on how the center did over this time. So they got an external reviewer, which was a very, very thorough person. I really appreciate the hard work that this, uh, this man did to get to know, you know, everything from the origins of the center, because he's a person that is very much into medical history. So I think he has written a couple ah. of books and he, he's really into digging deep and getting to know how things work. He took the time to get to know the center from the beginning. He also interviewed people, talked with a lot of people related either with the work at the center or associated with the center in some way. And as you say, it was very nice to get the feedback and that people talked to him about also that the center gave them a perspective that they might have not gotten in any other way, which is one of the goals at the center, obviously. And for the students, it's the same. And I think with time, we have really created a very inclusive and a very uh, tolerant and understanding environment of how science can be done, how science can be progressed. And the kind of questions that are asked to pursue this science are very different depending on the area you're talking about. And I do think that the students really appreciate to learn about this from the very beginning of their scientific and research careers.
1: I'm really happy to see that side of the center.
0: By the time this episode airs, the project call is now closed because it closed on 20th of uh, January. And I'm super excited to get to know which projects actually get funded for the new round and welcoming the new PhD students by the summer or beginning of the autumn. I think they're all going to be recruited and joined. It's going to be an exciting year at UAC with like a lot of new science coming. I hope that a lot of, Mm. you know, cutting edge, very innovative projects coming to the center, Mm -hmm. because I know there is a lot of people out there that are really trying to put disciplines together, which, you know, might not have been the natural thing to do in science, um, but this is what we need for topics like this. So I'm really looking forward to that and working with the new people. There was a little
1: bit of the the more scientific part of Linus's interview that we wanted to talk about. We wanted to talk a little bit about selfish, mobile genetic elements. Yes. Or in the selfish genetic elements in general, in yes. this case, mobile. I think Luna did a great job explaining a lot of this stuff, but it's often a common, because this is actually something that a lot of people have heard of. There's, among other things, a book published called The Selfish Gene that uh, make it sound like these genes or genetic elements are conscious and, and consciously try to, like they selfishly try to t- use their own advantages and stuff like that. And it's really just a matter of, you know, a balance between, The advantage of one element versus the advantage of another element. So a mobile genetic element in a certain setting, be it a plasmid or a plasmid in a bacterium or something else, that you have a conflict and balance between the advantages of the different elements. I mean, something Mm -hmm. might be beneficial that's on a plasmid for the bacterium, as Linus also mentioned as well but it's not like a conscious thing that the bacteria then keeps the plasmid.
0: Mm Yeah, It's a matter
1: of, you know, balance of how fast something is growing, how successful it is in a certain environment, if it survives, if it divides and produces offspring.
0: I I think there are like two main concepts or two main things that are important when we talk about selfish genetic elements. Mm -hmm. One, of course, is that the particular cell doesn't need that element to be an alive cell. So that means like if that element wouldn't be there, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't affect the cell negatively. Therefore, it's going to be like it's gonna be a good cell. Hmm. That's one of the things. But the other thing that then would make it selfish, I think it's, or at least how I understand it, is that the evolutionary trajectories of the genetic elements are different and they have, let's say, different uh, goals or different uh, purposes in a sense, but not like on a conscious sense of the world yeah. purpose but mostly like you have the bacteria that has its chromosome which is a genetic element and then you have the plasmid that comes into the cell and it's its own genetic element but the trajectories evolutionary trajectories might be completely different and what things select for changes or for the chromosome are different than the ones that select for the plasmid and the contents mm-hmm. of the plasmid so i think those two things that is not essential and that it will have different evolutionary trajectories is what would make it selfish in a sense
1: so the, the selfish part of it is also that, you know, the genetic element has evolved some aspect that makes it disadvantaged to lose it.
0: Yeah. So it, it's kind of like systems that those genetic selfish elements have Come up with and have developed so the cells don't get rid of them so easily. Basically, yeah. so it's like it keeps the cells hostage in a sense, right? Mm-hmm. Like that's that's what they're doing. Even though we normally call the bacteria the host and the you know the plasmid would be the guest, but in a sense, yeah. the plasmid is keeping hostage the cell in order to survive in there. So that's what yeah. and it also plays a role with when we talk about it, they have different evolutionary trajectories or ways to go. Mm-hmm. So. The plasmid is there trying to survive, and it can only survive inside a cell.
1: So, uh, Eva, you said you had a personal story about mobile genetic elements.
0: Yeah, I actually don't know if I would call it a mobile genetic element. It's definitely a selfish genetic element. So my my beginnings in studying genetics and, you know, uh, working... In the lab, we're actually working with grasshoppers uh, back when I was studying in Granada. And when I was studying uh, myself and a lot of people in the group, selfish chromosome is called, it's called the B chromosome. And it's a chromosome. It's an extra numerary chromosome in the cell of these uh, grasshoppers. And as we said, it's not needed. So some mm-hmm. don't have it. And nothing is bad, but some have it. And this group actually has worked during many, many years studying the evolution of these particular selfish elements and how they invade populations through mating and whatnot. And how those uh, B chromosomes that are composed of different kind of uh, chromatin, different kind of DNA in there, they are expressing or not expressing different things, it depends. But how do they invade populations and then they spread through populations and then they cannot die and they get lost and on and on and off again. So this is an example of a selfish genetic element. I wouldn't call yeah. it mobile because it doesn't really move between cells itself. It's only through mating, yeah. of course. No, that's but, a good point. But uh, it is a selfish genetic element. So mm-hmm. this is kind of like a kind of personal connection to the to the topic as well.
1: We also have a an article for a news section, in this case, mobile genetic elements. Yes,
0: it's very timely for, for the interview that we're featuring today.
1: Yeah, very appropriate. So how about we move on to the news?
0: Yes, let's do that. See you in the news. Welcome back to the news, and today we are starting with a very recent uh, article, as we said, very on point with the interview that we featured today. It's an article published in the Nature Communications Biology on 4th of January of this year. And has the title, A Framework for Identifying the Recent Origins of Mobile Antibiotic-Resistant Genes. And it's actually by a group here in Sweden, in the University of Gothenburg. And I think we have probably mentioned before, they have also a a multidisciplinary center, similar to ours, called the CARE Center. The senior author of this paper, Joachim Larsson, is the director of that center, actually. So it's a pretty interesting work that puts into context what we've been talking about, Linus's interview about these mobile genetic elements. And he actually mentioned it really nice, how these things... I, I think it was very nice when he gave the example of the PUUH, you know, the plasmid mm-hmm. that uh, gave the... Um,
1: The resistance and the Klebsiella outbreak at Uppsala University Hospital.
0: Exactly, the outbreak in the hospital. And how he said, like, well, that bacteria somewhere somehow met with other bacteria that had this thing, and then it transferred the genes. And this is exactly what this article is trying to systematically look for a way that we can find where do those genetic elements, those mobile genetic elements, come from, Right. We know that there are a lot of antibiotic-resistant genes out there, but they are not in pathogenic bacteria. So then there's not a problem. So how do we get to know where do the antibiotic-resistant genes in the pathogenic bacteria come from? Can we actually have a way, a systematic way, of understanding where did those pathogenic bacteria met a bacteria that had the antibiotic-resistant gene? And through connections with mobile genetic elements, was actually transferred to this pathogenic bacteria. And the idea behind this work is that if we get a lot of information about this, we are going to be able to predict and prevent that these instances happen.
1: Yeah, so we can identify like the dangerous moments where maybe some this needs to be taken into consideration. And if there's a way to prevent the actual spread of mm-hmm. the antibiotic resistance genes to a new host, that would be more dangerous.
0: Yes. so. The, what they went ahead and did was to do a comprehensive search of literature, trying to find all the articles out there that are uh, tackling the, the question of where is the recent origin of these antibiotic-resistant genes. They did look through 3,342 papers, which equal a total of 37 origins. 19% of the origins couldn't be confidently assigned, so then they took away. And with the rest, more than 90% of the taxa, that was the original taxa, was associated with infection in either humans or domestic animals so this means that what they actually found doing this analysis and creating this framework which as i understand it was a lot of work because once they got all that data what they actually did it was to supplement and try to to kind of top up the missing data in all the the works that they look through yeah
1: this was definitely more than just like a literature search they had to do a lot of work on their own but kind of based from the ideas and from the groundwork of other groups mm,
0: yeah they are bioinformaticians they do a lot of work with yeah. bioinformatics so that's kind of the strength, um, so yeah what the overall um, results it's that of of the ones that they could study and have, the ninety percent were associated with infections in either humans or domestic animals. that means that um, the origin taxa was isolated from infection sites either in animals or in humans, so somehow somewhere Both the bacteria that had the original antibiotic-resistant gene and the one that is pathogenic were together. Yes. Presumably on the human or the animal, either in the microbiome or, you know, the gut and all those places where there's a lot of bacteria being together. And the transfer happened there. And that's how they end up in a pathogenic bacteria.
1: But Ava, when you say the origin taxa... Do you mean like the absolute origin or are we talking about um, something else?
0: No. So here what they are actually very nicely describing the paper as well is what they call the recent origin, because we know that antibiotic resistant genes have been out there very long time, many, many millions of years, like they found antibiotic resistant genes in permafrost and things like that. So they are there in bacteria. But what they are looking and what they are actually able to look for with these bioinformatic tools is recent events of transfer between taxa. Because then yeah. what they can do is to compare the sequences, see how many sequence similarity there is, if there is similarities into the genes that are next to those antibiotic-resistant genes, so kind of big chunks of whatever yeah. genetic material it is. So these are the, what is called the recent origin. And it's most likely, you know, the point where it went from a non-pathogenic bacteria into a pathogenic bacteria. But that doesn't yeah. mean that it was the bacteria where that uh, antibiotic-resistant gene was originated, right? Yeah. It might have been originated long time ago. And then it ended up in that bacteria that is the one that happened to get in contact physically in the same place and time as a pathogenic bacteria. Yeah.
1: And they also point out that uh, in a lot of these origin or recent origin species that this antibiotic resistance gene doesn't actually give resistance. It's not really in the right um, context because you can have a gene Mm -hmm. that doesn't either isn't like... There's not enough of the product of the gene, the the protein or Mm -hmm. such is not expressed to actually give resistance. And uh, it seems to be the case in a lot of these. They don't actually have they don't carry actual resistance expressed.
0: The resistance in itself, it was actually not a criteria that they included in the study.
1: Which I think is a really good element of the study because it's really coming down to, you know, where did it come from, not necessarily like when did this
0: work as a resistant gene
1: exactly when did this trait come it's more of a genetic question of when did the actual gene come into play in the setting
0: yeah and then being transferred into it so of course there are biases and there are like limitations to this kind of work especially Mm -hmm. because when you're working with data that is on databases you are always going to have a bias there we know that a lot of the bacteria out there microorganisms are not yet sequence or properly sequence or sequence in many many times like some other bacteria yeah. so the taxa that they found here most likely to be the origin it was uh, proteobacteria which are bacteria that are generally associated with animal and human uh, microbiota so that also mm-hmm. all makes sense in itself but of course as they mentioned very clearly one cannot exclude the possibility that there is many other antibiotic resistant genes that are Uh, originated in in environmental bacteria that the most recent origin might also be environmental bacteria we just don't have enough data to make conclusions about those but also this kind of study and the studies that have looked into origins before are very biased towards certain type of antimicrobial resistant genes like could be the beta lactamase genes and of course there you are always including carry-on biases that might Obscure some part of the uh-huh. of the reality of it all, so I think the more sequence uh, techniques we get, the more comprehensive, you know, meta analysis meta sequences of different environments, we get we might actually get new results and new uh, knowledge of where these antimicrobial resistant genes might actually yeah. be coming from.
1: They mentioned that these what is it thirty seven antibiotic resistance genes represent a small number of the total. I think it's 600-something that they found in a commonly used database called ResFinder that catalogs antibiotic resistance genes in a way. Mm -hmm. So they were saying, you know, okay, we can be pretty confident that these all come from these animal-human sources, uh, and they seem to very predominantly come from animal-human sources, but these other ones that we can't find a source for, we maybe haven't sequenced the recent origin, and it might be because it is more common in the environment and everything like that. So like you mentioned, it's a... It's an inherent bias that maybe it doesn't mean that this is the primary or an only way to, that these things happen. Mm-hmm. And it actually kind of hints that maybe there, the environment does play a big role. Yeah. But it's hard to know because we just don't have the data.
0: Exactly. They do speculate, you know, how mm-hmm. the environment might come into play also with the with the animals and the humans in the end because you know pathogenic bacteria don't generally hang around so much in the environment they move from from host to host and it is very natural to think that if a gene ends up in a pathogenic bacteria the most likely scenario where it might have encountered the pathogenic bacteria it's in either a human or a or uh, an animal and they also mentioned that of course the things that you kind of need to put together is a mix of having the antibiotic resistant gene having the mobile genetic element that it can be associated to it the Mm -hmm. antibiotic selective pressure and the recipient ones so you have to it's like a perfect soup for this kind of thing to happen Overall, I really enjoy reading this article. It is open access in, in nature uh-huh. Communications biology. So like always, we leave you down in the show notes, the link. And also um, it's been covered in some popular news. So we also leave you like a popular article so you guys can read and share if, if you want to. And then we have another piece of news, uh, a little bit more on the you know politics side that we talk about, and politics is always there on the forefront of of the news everywhere. So here we are going to talk a little bit about money and how to get more antibiotics into the market. Can you tell us yeah. Jenny, what's the the new publication about?
1: So this article is called Reimbursement Models to Tackle Market Failures for Antimicrobials, Approaches Taken in France, Germany, Sweden, the United Kingdom, and the United States. So this article was published in Health Policy. It's so far only online um, ahead of press, but it was accepted on the 25th of November Mm -hmm. in 2020. So it's still pretty recent. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is actually pretty much a summary of a lot of what we've talked about before, which is why I really wanted to talk about it. It's a more, I would say, academic summary. Mm Uh, we've mentioned several often briefly several new pilot initiatives in different countries to try to tackle this problem of basically ideally delinking antibiotic sales from the unit sales so basically we don't want companies have to make their money based on selling a lot of antibiotics especially the last line antibiotics this is a nice summary of how five different countries then uh, in the G20 countries have been able to try to change things either by small incremental steps of what's the framework that already exists, or there's a few examples of bigger changes that are trying to happen that are really delinking the um, reimbursement to the antibiotic producer from the sales. So just in general, like I said, it's France, Germany, and US, uh, as well as the UK and Sweden. In France, Germany, and the US, it's mainly um, these small level things of really trying to remove the disincentives from companies of producing antibiotics. I mean, a lot of it is kind of how we classify antibiotics in a health policy setting. Is it useful? Is it a new thing that we need? Or is it a me too drug or that sort of thing? Uh, the thing is, we need several antibiotics that work. So even if there is another antibiotic that works, if this one works differently to some way, it still has value. And that can be a question of, okay, we, in this case, it's so simple as, okay, non-inferiority trials where the drug does just as good as another drug that already exists are acceptable instead of superiority trials. So this drug, we're basically saying the drug doesn't have to be better than what's already on the market. It just has to be as good. And basically it comes down to a matter of how these companies are reimbursed, how they can price their products in these different countries. But these are, you know, smaller changes based on the framework that already exists in these countries. But then there's cases like the UK and Sweden where they're doing where they're really trying new models for incentivizing companies to make new antibiotics based on how they reimbursed. So in this case in Sweden it's kind of a combination of the new and the old. They're saying we will pay a flat amount uh, to produce if you like promise us this many units of the antibiotic. If they manage to sell more than that, then they'll actually be sold at unit price so that, as things are now. So they can they can be sure to make a a Minimum fee, basically, and then anything more above that is added on. So it's kind of a combination of both. The companies can at least be sure that they'll make a certain amount of money selling that drug in uh, the country. And in Sweden, it's based. It's uh, two drugs that will be included in this way. So the companies actually have to apply for the drug to work this way. It's not, you know, all antibiotics or anything like that. This is a matter of they're going to accept certain new antibiotics or antimicrobials. In some cases, in some countries, it's antifungals are included and some not. The UK has a even more, I'd say, brave approach. It's really a straight-up, we will uh, reimburse you this much money for free use of the antibiotic, basically, when we need it. But it's also, you know, the, in these cases, it also comes with a guarantee of supply, saying you also, as a company, need to ensure that we can have that antibiotic when we need it. Mm-hmm. And this is also in the US under consideration. There's a few acts in the US that we've talked about before, including the Pasteur Act and the Disarm Act. Uh, I thought this paper was nice. It also talks about some of the advantages and disadvantages of the dis- different systems and some of the difficulties so this we're talking about huge amounts of money many of these countries are very happy to spend if the problem is solved or helped in this way but it's a problem of how do we decide which antibiotics should be reimbursed in this way so in many cases the companies have to apply to become one of these drugs that are included in one of these models systems and How do we pick one? It can't be one that we already have a mode of action to or there's cross resistance to. You really want something novel. Mm
0: -hmm. And it's an
1: it is an incentive for companies to really make a novel antibiotic. Mm -hmm. But you kind of have to like be sure that there's no cross lines that you're really getting your bang for your buck in that case. Uh and also when it's on a country to country level, the company is still not really that sure about the reimbursement. Mm -hmm. It's a lot of money. Like as a whole or like mm-hmm. the uk reimbursement alone isn't going to compensate the company for all the sales in the rest of the world that they would try to sell but it's it's a start mm-hmm. and this is what we need and especially as the author said these kinds of pilot studies will give us a lot of information about how to move forward it's pretty much everyone's in agreement that this is what we need but there's no global push yet
0: yeah and i guess a global push is is also rather complicated when every country yes. works with health systems in such a different way you know like Uh you were mentioning to me before like that the US healthcare system is very complicated, very different than what we might have (laughs) in some countries here in Europe or imagine in some countries in low and middle income countries as well. How how do you actually globalize such a thing? I I think like it would be easier to have some sort of like global healthcare management. That would be Mm -hmm. Ideal, but of course it's uh, it's not like utopia, right? Kind of. <laughs> yeah.
1: But I mean, even I was kind of surprised by even within the EU. I mean, we're talking about three.
0: Yeah, Germany, UK, and Sweden, France Three also. plus
1: yeah. UK. Uh, uh, yeah, sorry. Uh, <laughs> hard to classify nowadays. Yeah. But we're talking about EU countries historically that have many things. In common, many regulation systems together, but they have very different ways of reimbursing comp- or of looking at drugs and how they classify their drugs and how they can mm-hmm. then be priced or if they're excluded or included in certain exceptions. And it just seems very complicated. And they make the point of this paper that and and now it's almost always small, medium-sized companies mm-hmm. that are making new antibiotics, yeah. and it's very cumbersome for them to be able to try to get into the details of the health systems in all these different countries and every single place they're going to try to market it. In many cases, they just don't. Yeah. They market them in the US. Yeah. It's a big market with a lot of money. Completely screwed up market in my personal opinion, yeah. but it's it's one country where the company can market the antibiotic and they just don't elsewhere because it's too hard. And I understand them reading this. Every single place has a different rule. and
0: Yeah, I guess uh, there would be a point for... Some sort of like advisory panel that yeah. works very closely with these companies in every country with the governments. you know, like there is these people that their solely job is to guide these companies into how okay. to implement or bring their drugs into their countries. That mm-hmm. would be actually something very useful. I don't know if there is such a thing already work, working in the different countries or not, or how they actually personally connect with these companies.
1: Yeah, I mean, there is a European Medicines Agency. I'm not sure if that's the mm-hmm. exact phrasing. It's EMA, but I'm not sure what role they play. I know that drugs can be individually approved as well. It's uh, it's very messy, and especially when it comes down to how the companies are reimbursed at the hospital level.
0: Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, it's all these countries have different types of healthcare, different healthcare setups, and how the actual... It, it can come down to just how that country reimburses their hospitals affects... the antibiotics will be sold
0: and yeah and the company ultimately of course yeah Yeah.
1: exactly so it's it's a very very messy problem and it Mm -hmm. would benefit greatly from some streamlining
0: (laughs) i guess this Uh, is the beginning right looking into how to do things differently and maybe maybe fixing the problems in those systems as well
1: exactly and it's one of the reasons why it's so important that more of these pilot studies are happening in different settings because you kind of have to see it's basically an individual setting but the more different healthcare settings are doing some sort of pilot you can see some of the issues coming up, some of the things you have to watch out for. This was a really nice article for me to read. I mean, having followed all of this Hmm. in like tiny little steps, it was really nice to get it all put together and kind of compared. So unfortunately this paper isn't open access. I really wish it was because it would be really nice to let everybody, it's just a summary of what we've been talking about in tiny little fragments Mm -hmm. um, with a lot of nice input. So I hope that those who want to read it can get access to it.
0: Yeah, and we we will keep an eye if there is some other coverage of this, like yeah. more in popular websites or maybe... Um, maybe you know, blog posts or something. Exactly, about- and if we find something like that, we will, of course, update the, the show notes and have it there. But so far, yeah. we, we know for sure the link to the original literature is there and hopefully you can you can find access to it
1: we have a few links to some of these uh in previous episodes where we've talked about the individual countries initiatives Mm
0: -hmm. that was great very nice beginning of 2021 i think yes promising
1: exciting hopefully we can have more direct interaction this year (laughs) yes
0: and of course for anybody out there listening uh, keep an eye on our website and our twitter because we will announce all the you know all the activities that we do a lot of it is gonna presumably continue to be online at least this semester so there's gonna be a lot of like uh, seminars that anybody anywhere can join so keep an eye on that i hope to have you with us in some of those activities and for sure on our next uh, podcast episode the beginning of march here
1: uh, and speaking of the fact that we can do everything online, please, if you know somebody or personally think you can be a good fit for being interviewed for us, uh, we would really like to talk to some people, uh, now that we can do it online and do well, good interviews from a distance. We're really open to anyone, anywhere.
0: It is a very open world nowadays. So we're always wanted to learn what people are working on and getting to know more people that we would not actually get to know otherwise. So exactly. Please let us know.
1: So feel free to give us some recommendations. Yes.
0: That's great. Thank you so much for this month. See you back soon. Bye. Bye. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us on Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang.
1: And a big thank you to Henrik Nies for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm.